Well, I cannot tell you what an honor it is for me to be back here at St. Philip's this morning. It's incredibly hard to believe that it was two years ago that, um, as Jeff said this morning, I was taken away like a thief in the night in the, in the middle of COVID and my family uh, went to Jackson, Mississippi, where we've been for the last two years serving as rector at, at a church there. St. Philip's really is the place where I got my, my, my teeth cut, as they say, in, in parish ministry, where I was nurtured and, and, and sent out. And so I am forever grateful to you, uh, to, to the, the parish, to Jeff, to my brother clergy, for the blessing of, of the three years that I was here among you. This is a, a parish that, that has a worldwide ministry, and the Lord is using you in mighty ways. And so it's just that it is an honor for me to be here today. Well, I want to preach to you today from Psalm chapter 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are they who trust in Him. On New Year's Eve, 1879, Menlo Park in New Jersey, Thomas Edison publicly demonstrated what, what he's best known for today. And that, of course, is the invention of the light bulb. It was an invention that would absolutely change the world as we know it. What you may not know about Edison, however, is that he was a lifelong skeptic, right? He was a skeptic about God. He was a skeptic about the human soul, the afterlife, and certainly about the Christian faith. In his early biography, Matthew Josephson quotes Edison as saying this, I have never seen the slightest scientific proof of the religious theories of heaven and hell, of future life for individuals, or of a personal God. I work on a certain line that may be called perhaps mechanical. Proof. Proof. That's what I've always been after. I do not know the soul. I know the mind. If there is really any soul, I've found no evidence of it in my investigations. Now, none of this should really surprise us. As an inventor, a scientist, an inquirer, Edison only believed what he could absorb with the five senses. I wonder if anyone here this morning can, can identify with Edison in this. You say, you know, I'm not sure I can really sign on to all these Christian beliefs. Heaven, hell. I'm not sure about God sending His Son to die for my sins. That blood was needed for the forgiveness of my sins. That He was raised from the dead. I'm not sure that He makes Himself personally known to people. Have you ever just kind of looked at it all and said, "How, how can I know this is true? How can I really know that this is all true? Well, Psalm 34.8 tells us just that. It tells you and me how we can know for sure that it is all true. If you were to look in your ESV Pew Bible, you would see a superscript right, right before Psalm 34 that says of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. And what that's doing 
is it's giving us the context of this psalm. When it took place. It refers back to a time in David's life that's recorded in 1 Samuel 21. It's before he becomes king. He's been hiding from King Saul who wants to kill him. And again and again and again, he goes from one cave to another cave as Saul tries to track him down. Finally, David becomes so desperate that he flees to the territory of the Philistines. Now, who are the Philistines? The Philistines were Israel's enemy number one, weren't they? And it wasn't long before this, probably less than a decade, if you'll remember, that David had slain the Philistines' greatest warrior. You remember his name? Goliath. So you better believe that the Philistines are eager to see the man pay who humiliated them by killing their greatest warrior. So his presence, of course, is reported to the king of the Philistines and he's taken into custody. So here, David was, as they say, he was jumping out of Saul's frying pan in to the Philistines' fire. You remember what he did when he was brought before Abimelech? You better believe he offers up a prayer. That prayer is found in Psalm 56. But what does he do right after that? It's very memorable. He pretends that well, he, he pretends that he, he has lost his, his marbles. Right? That he has gone completely mad. I mean, he put on what nowadays they would call a clinic. Right? He puts on a show. He's, he's scratching the doorpost. He's drooling all over himself. He's, he's mumbling and he's making all kinds of strange noises like he's some kind of an animal. See, David knew it was a, a, a long shot. But the Philistine king actually falls for it here. He falls for it. And so instead of killing David, he just says, this, this man has is, is lost his mind. He's, he's, he's crazy. He's no threat to me in my realm anymore. And so he just, he just kind of throws him out of the city. And this experience of, of God's deliverance, of God's salvation, it makes such an impression on David that he pens this 34th Psalm. David experiences such joy that, that, and you can see it in these first three verses, he invites the reader to join him in praising and magnifying the name of the Lord. Why? Because as you well know, joy just isn't complete until the object of that joy is shared with someone else. Isn't that true? If, if you visit a restaurant and your meal happens to be exceptionally good, exceptionally delicious that evening, what do you do? Well, if you're anything like my wife, you, you kind of cut off a bite of it with your knife and with your fork and then you stick it onto your husband's plate and you say, you got to try this. Well, that's what David wants you to do. That's what He wants me to do. He wants us to try the Lord and to know for ourselves. That's really the main point of this sermon. It's, it's this. How does David say that you can know the Lord? Notice what he doesn't say. 
He doesn't say, oh, assemble and prove the arguments and go to the ends of the earth and study every philosophy and rationalize every religion and spend a lifetime working it all out so that then maybe you can prove it and then maybe you'll get somewhere. Maybe you'll get to knowing Him. That's not what He says. That's not how you get to know God. How does David invite you to know God here? Verse 8, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. David here gives us a spiritual principle that we find throughout the Scriptures. And it is this. As far as knowing God, tasting comes before seeing. Experiencing comes before full understanding. In the first century, the writer to the Hebrews says it like this, by faith, by belief, we understand. In the fourth century, St. Augustine says it this way, if you do not believe, you will not understand. And in the twelfth century, Bernard of Clairvaux says, unless you have tasted it, you will never see it. Unless you have tasted Him, you will never see Him. David says you have to start with tasting, with accepting, with with drinking deeply, experiencing what God offers you. Or as he says in, in another psalm, Psalm 116, you've got to lift up the cup of salvation. You've got to receive it. You've got to drink it down. And only then do you get to the knowing? Do you get to the understanding? Do you get to the the proving? Do you get to the absolutely? I know this is so real that nothing could ever shake me from it. There's an old legend. I I, I don't know the veracity of it, but it's, it's said that in the 1960s, there was a certain divinity school where Dr. Paul Tillich, not, not an orthodox guy by any means, was invited to give the lecture that year. Well, Dr. Tillich spoke for about two and a half hours mounting his evidence that the resurrection of Jesus was false. He quoted scholar after scholar after scholar and book after book. And, and he concluded that since there was no such thing as a historical resurrection, that the religious tradition of the church was, was a groundless emotional mumbo-jumbo kind of thing because it was based on a relationship with a risen Jesus who in fact never rose from the dead in any literal sort of sense. And then he asked the crowd if there were any questions. And, And there was silence. But after about 30 seconds or so, an old country preacher with a head full of white hair stood up in the back of the auditorium. Everybody turned around. And he said, Dr. Tillich, I've, I've, I've got just one question. And he reached into his sack lunch and he, he pulled out an apple and he began eating it. And Dr. Tillich, as he's crunching on his apple, my question is a simple question. Now, I ain't never read them books you read. Crunch, crunch. And uh, I can't recite the Scriptures in the original Greek I don't know nothing about those Heidegger and and, and Niebuhr fellas. He finished his apple. All I want to know is this apple that I just ate. Was it bitter or was it sweet? 
Dr. Tillich paused for a moment and answered in exemplary, scholarly fashion, Sir, I cannot possibly answer that question, for I have not tasted your apple. The old white-haired man dropped the core of his apple and his crumpled up paper bag. And he looked up at Dr. Tillich and he said calmly, neither has you tasted my Jesus. David says that before you can come to know God, His reality, His goodness, the peace and the sweetness that He brings to the human soul, you have got to taste Him. Tasting comes before seeing, before knowing. But that brings us to another question. How in fact do you taste God? I mean, that was the kind of thing that sent people away from Jesus, wasn't it? You remember what He said to the crowd in John 6 in Capernaum? He said, unless you eat My flesh and drink My blood, you have no life in you. But whoever feeds on My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life. In other words, taste and see that I am good. Take what I offer you. Taste it. Eat it. Drink it. But how does one do it? I mean, obviously, Jesus isn't saying, okay, Matthew, you grab My left arm. And Thomas, you get the right one and y'all start eating. John and Peter, y'all take my legs. James, why don't you start over here on my ribs? Jesus isn't saying that, is He? No, you see, David and Jesus here understand something that Mr. Edison didn't understand. What's that? It's that just as human beings were created with a physical nature, which needs certain physical nourishment to live. So we were also created with a spiritual nature that needs certain spiritual nourishment to live. And just as we were created with a certain physical, these senses and physical organs and physical mouths and stomachs to take in and to digest and to taste food, so we were also created with spiritual organs to perceive spiritual realities. To taste and to feed upon spiritual food. And Jesus says, if you want to have life, eternal life, fullness of life, if you want to know Me, you had better exercise your spiritual mouth and feed upon Me. So how do you do it? I mean, how, do you, how do you taste Him? How do you use your spiritual mouth to feed upon Him. We say it every Sunday at the communion table. What does the celebrant say immediately before we come up to the rail to receive communion? You'll, you'll hear it today. The gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on Him in your hearts by faith. You feed on Him in your hearts, in your spirit man, by the spiritual mouth of faith. As St. Augustine says, believe and you have eaten. Believe in what? I mean, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus tells you in another place in John, My words are spirit and life. I can't say that about my words. But Jesus' words are spirit and life and they bring life. 
believe and you have eaten. That's exactly what Jesus is saying, isn't it? Because just a few verses before that in John 6, where He tells the people that if they don't eat His flesh and they don't drink His blood, then they have no life in Him, He says the exact same thing in a slightly different way. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall never hunger. And whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. Do you want to taste Him? Come to Him. Believe in Him. Take what He offers to you. Lift up the cup of salvation and let His holy blood pass through your soul. And do you know what will happen if you do that? He will become so intimately acquainted with you that you will know for sure that there is a God who is close at hand who has loved you with an everlasting love. And you will only then begin the process of understanding how deep, how high, how wide, how long is the love of God in Jesus Christ. This this divine love brings heaven into the soul. So much so that anyone who, who tastes it, anyone who is touched by it, will no longer belong to themselves, but they will be, as the Apostle Paul says, constrained by this love. Controlled by this love. Do you want that? Do you want to know God as David knew God? Do you want to see in the depth of your soul the beauty of which all the beauties in this world are but shadows? Do you want to taste in the deepest place of your spirit man the sweetness which all the sweetest tasting foods in this world are but appetizers? Do you want to be wrapped in the embrace of which even the best relationships in this world are but acquaintances? Come to Jesus Christ. Open your heart to Him. Open the mouth of faith and know Know that He is all joy, all peace, all satisfying. And you can know Him. And you can know Him deeper than you know Him now. Well, in closing... Thomas Edison lived an entire life. And he didn't have a relationship with God. But as he became an old man, he felt like you know, he'd, he'd really like to know if what the Scriptures taught about God and His Son, Jesus, was true. And in fact, if, if he, Thomas Edison, could get to the bottom of it. So, he knew a famous lawyer at the time, a, a, a man named Philip Moreau. Moreau was a highly respected lawyer who had happened to become a Christian since the time Edison had come to know him. And Edison wrote to Moreau, he wrote him a letter, and he said that he wanted information from him about whether or not you could prove that God was real and whether or not he could be known. So Mr. Moreau visited Edison about this letter. And Mr. Moreau writes this summary of their meeting. It's dated October the 29th, 1925. He says, Mr. Edison is now in his 80th year, but his mind is evidently as keen as ever. 
all his life, his attitude regarding things not seen, God, the human soul, life hereafter, and so forth, have been severely skeptical. But now in the sunset of his days, he has undertaken the investigation of those great matters with a desire to know the truth, but with insistence upon proof. I want facts, was the way he expressed the attitude of his mind. But owing to Mr. Edison's deafness, it was difficult to speak to him. So I wrote a brief letter that I hoped would, would help him, and he promised me that he would read it attentively. I'd, I'd like to read you a portion of that letter that Mr. Moreau sent. Here's what he wrote. You want facts. So do I. A reasonable man's belief should rest upon nothing less substantial than well-attested facts. So here is a fact for you. God, whom you reverently call the supreme intelligence, loves you. And He wants your love in return. My visit to you and this letter are evidences of it, though, of course, not sufficient to prove to your satisfaction either that God is or that He cares for Thomas Edison. But wait, another fact. God is light. How do I know? I know in the only way that light can be known by experience. For the nature of light is such that it admits of being only in the way of experimental knowledge. I am saying this to the man who has had more to do with the development of artificial light than any other who ever lived in this dark world and who probably knows more about light in a practical way than any other. How then could the existence and the nature of light be demonstrated to one who had been shut up all his life in a dark cell? It could be done only in some such way as by opening a window and then the light would enter and prove itself. The point is that the proof you demand can be had only by experiment. For myself, I know that God is light and that He sheds light in the heart that is open to Him because I put the matter to the test of experience 23 years ago and have enjoyed the consciousness of spiritual light ever since. Moreover, my experience is that of millions of others. Let me remind you that light will not force its way into a place that is tightly closed, but that if only a tiny chink be opened, in it comes, proving itself. Likewise, Christ, who is the true light, does not force Himself into the chamber of the soul against the human will, but He ever waits at the door ready to come in if wanted. So you may have the proof if you will. For the nature of the matter is such that like the smell of a violet, the color of a sunset, or the taste of honey, it can be known only by experiment. The good book that you asked me not to quote, Edison just kept telling Moreau, don't quote to me the Bible. I don't want to hear the Bible. The good book says, come and see. Taste and see. Is that not strictly scientific? You have been doing, truly doing God's work in helping to enlighten the darkness of nature. But there is a spiritual darkness too. 
So follow the analogy. And it will lead you straight to the truth and to the solution of the whole mystery of human existence. With sincere affection and respect, Philip Moreau. O come and see, O taste and see that the Lord is good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.